This is Africa Digest. Seventeen hundred hours Central African time. Good afternoon and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa from an African perspective. We're broadcasting to you from our studios in Johannesburg, South Africa, and you can find us on www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Samora Magesi, and I'm in studio with Jola Nitula, as well as Nosile Zuma. Top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. More than 50,000 people are staging protests in Sudan's capital, Khartoum, calling on those who killed protesters last to be prosecuted. Burundi's president, Evariste Ndaishmiye, declares the coronavirus the country's biggest enemy and Zimbabwe's government relaxes the COVID-19 lockdown to allow restaurants to open at 50% seating capacity. Right now, though, it's time for us to cross on over to the news desk. Here is Joana Nitulo with the latest. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Samora. Good afternoon. At least 50 people have been killed in Ethiopia's Oromia region during violent protests over the killing of a popular musician in the country. That's according to the BBC. Spokesperson for the Oromia regional state, Getachu Balcha, says many others were injured in the clashes and there has been significant destruction to property. The Ethiopian Federal Police has also said that one police officer was killed during the unrest. Ethiopian pop star Hachalu Hundesa, who was critical of the government in his songs was gunned down on Sunday evening in his vehicle in the capital Addis Ababa. Police have arrested two people in connection to the incident. Uganda is temporarily opening part of its border to allow at least 3,000 Congolese refugees into the country. They are believed to be fleeing intercommunal violence in the east of the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uganda hosts more than 1 million refugees but closed its borders in March to control the spread of the coronavirus. Thousands of displaced people have been stuck in the DRC's Ituri region trying to seek safety in northern Uganda. The UN's refugee agency says sample testing will be carried out on the group to see if coronavirus is present among them. 52 refugees have so far tested positive for COVID-19 in Uganda out of nearly 900 confirmed cases. South Africa's Opposition Economic Freedom Fighters Party once has called, rather, for a return to the strict Level 5 lockdown in the country as coronavirus cases rise. The EFF says the only way to prevent further spread is for people to stay home and the government to reinstate all lockdown restrictions that were in place before easing started. The party says no amount of social distancing, wearing masks and sanitization will help reduce the rise in infections and deaths. The EFF also says the country's healthcare system will not be able to cope with the rising number of infections. South Africa's co-cases of coronavirus rose to 151,209 on Tuesday, with deaths at 2,657. Britain's Prime Minister Boris Johnson has urged Israel not to go ahead with annexation of parts of the occupied West Bank. Writing in an Israeli newspaper, he called himself a passionate defender of Israel, but said the annexation of the Palestinian territory would violate international law. Israel's government had said it might start the annexation process from today, but the plan seems to have been stalled. The BBC's Jeremy Bowen says the Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu now faces a dilemma. All of Israel's allies, pretty much, including Britain, have said that they don't want this to happen. The King of Jordan has said it could lead to an enormous clash with Jordan. Palestinians, of course, are against it. And there are internal Israeli issues as well. So it's got all really very complicated. And Mr Netanyahu, who sometimes has a history for all his tough talk of hesitating, dithering, some people say, seems now to be wondering, is this something he can actually pull off? And finally, South African women's rights and sexual and reproductive health specialist Dr. Laleng Mufuking has been appointed as a leading global expert on health by the Human Rights Council in Geneva. Dr. Mufuking's title will be Special Rapporteur on the Right of Everyone to the Enjoyment of the Highest Attainable Standard of Physical and Mental Health. Sherwin Bryce Pease has the story. The news was confirmed to SABC News by South Africa's Ambassador to Geneva, Nozipo Mkakato Diseko. Special rapporteurs are independent experts 
appointed by the Human Rights Council to examine and report back on a specific country situation or a specific human rights theme. The United Nations views the right to health as an inclusive one that extends not only to timely and appropriate health care, but also to the underlying determinants of health, such as access to safe water, adequate sanitation, access to health-related education, including sexual and reproductive health. Special rapporteur mandates generally last three years and can be renewed for an additional three years. She will present annual reports to the Human Rights Council and the General Assembly. For Channel Africa, I'm Cholani Tulo. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. This is Africa Digest. More than 50,000 people are staging protests in Sudan's capital Khartoum to push the country's ruling sovereign council to prosecute security personnel responsible for the killing of more than 100 protesters in last year's uprising that led to the toppling of longtime ruler Omar Hassan al-Bashir. James Shimanyula has more. Thousands of protesters in Sudan's capital Khartoum sang a revolutionary song that featured calls for more reforms in the country. As the sound of the song faded out, security forces fired tear gas canisters into the air to disperse the protesters marching on the road leading to the country's international airport. The security forces also closed off major roads and streets leading to government and military headquarters in Khartoum. One of the protesters, Ahmed Hassan, explains laconically in Arabic why he and others are on the streets. We are on the streets to demand justice for victims of our revolution last year here in Khartoum. People died and we are demanding prosecution of those that caused their deaths. We have not forgotten the brutal killing of our people. Their killers are now walking free and must be arrested and prosecuted. Another Arabic-speaking protester, Abdel Osman, a renowned Khartoum human rights activist, echoed Hassan's remarks. We want nothing but justice to take its cause. We want those responsible for the killing of our brothers and sisters last year to be arrested and prosecuted. We plead with the government to hear our voices and act quickly and prosecute the killers. Responding to calls and demands made by protesters, General Yasmin Al-Hatta, a member of Sudan's ruling sovereign council, explained the presence of heavy security in Khartoum and other major cities. Our security forces are on the streets to maintain law and order and protect people, ordinary people and protesters. As the protests continued in Khartoum and other places in the country, spokesman for the New York-based Human Rights Watch, Jihani Henry, made an urgent call to the Khartoum government to prosecute alleged killers of more than 100 people last year. She flashes back to what happened before killings took place. They shot unarmed protesters and killed them on the spot. They also rounded up protesters and beat them, cut their hair, insulted them, and held them arbitrarily in detention for periods of time before releasing them. We also documented many cases of rape and other sexual assaults. This is how Jihani Henry described the crimes that were committed last year during protests. 
the crimes that were committed in this context could be crimes against humanity because it appears that they were planned in advance and they're part of a systematic attack on protesters that Sudanese security forces have carried out. The method of cracking down on protesters has included live ammunition, so shooting to kill, shooting dead the protesters. The fresh protests in Khartoum and elsewhere in the country are the first major demonstrations since rallies last year that forced the then ruling military council to hand over power to a civilian government. Already, Sudan's Prime Minister Abdel Hamdouk has spoken in the capital Khartoum and pointed out that the protests are, as he put it, legitimate and necessary to correct the revolution's track. Hamdouk made it clear that demands by the protesters will be met by the government in the next two weeks. Hamdouk went on to say, and I quote, In the coming days, a number of decisive decisions will follow. Some of them may have a significant impact politically, economically, and socially, and some parties will try to use them to fuel and create instability, end of quote. Meanwhile, Sudan's information minister, Faisal Saleh, says security forces have arrested nine leaders of Topol, the President el-Bashir's now-dissolved National Congress Party and Islamists for plotting what he described as hostilities against the government. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Burundi's president, Evariste Ndayishimiye, on Tuesday declared the coronavirus the country's biggest enemy in a major shift for the country, which has reportedly told the public that they had divine protection against the disease, which has claimed over half a million lives globally. Ndayishimiye took over from Pion Kurunzinza, whom the government says died of a heart attack, but is suspected to have died from the disease weeks after his wife was airlifted to Nairobi for treatment. Sarah Kimani reports. Nkrunzinza, who died last month, and the country's leadership, including Dayishimiye, had until now downplayed the gravity of the pandemic, invoking divine intervention. The country, which has so far reported 170 cases, has taken few measures to contain the spread of the disease. New measures put in place include subsidizing the price of soap by 50%, as well as lowering the cost of water. Testing and treatment of COVID-19 will also be offered free of charge. Testing centers will be set up across the country. In May, Burundi expelled a team of World Health Organization experts who were supporting the country's response to the pandemic. Meanwhile, the African Development Bank has approved grants totaling $9.52 million to strengthen responses to the COVID-19 pandemic in East Africa, the Horn, and also the Comoros. The beneficiaries are Burundi, Comoros, Djibouti, Eritrea, Ethiopia, Somalia, Kenya, Rwanda, South Sudan, Sudan, Tanzania, and Uganda. Funding will also go towards the procurement of essential medical supplies, including testing kits, and to train health workers. The funds will be used to bolster health systems and disease surveillance, enhance infection prevention and control, and improve regional coordination by the East African community and the Intergovernmental Authority on Development, IGAD, to contain cross-border transmissions. Sarah Kimani, SBC News, Kenya. The Zimbabwean government has relaxed the COVID-19 lockdown to allow restaurants to open to 50% uh, sitting capacity and the safari and wildlife parks to resume business. The move is aimed to t- turning the economy back to its feet, although only domestic tourists will be catered for in the absence of flights and borders still closed. Tourism is one of the top four sectors that was contributing huge amounts to revenue to the GDP ahead of the lockdown. More from our correspondent based in Harare, Zimbabwe, Simon Muchemwa. The Zimbabwean government has decided to let restaurants, safaris and wildlife parks to reopen only to the domestic tourists. The restaurants will be operating 50% seating capacity, while safaris will start by allowing only the local communities to visit and hunt. The tourism players raised concerns recently that the COVID-19 lockdown had taken the sector to its knees Yet it is one of the top four in terms of gross domestic product contributions. Airports and borders remains closed for travelers intending to visit Zimbabwe except for the returnees from countries throughout the world.
The Minister of Information, Monica Mchangwa, revealed details of this decision Tuesday evening during the post-cabinet media briefing in Harare. and hospitality sector requests for variations of operating conditions in respect of restaurants operators and to reopen safari operators local hunting only. Restaurants will now be allowed to serve sitting meals at 50% of the restaurant's sitting capacity. Zimbabwe's tourism industry was heavily affected by the COVID-19 pandemic and subsequent lockdown as the first person to be tested positive in the country was from Victoria Falls, a tourism hub in the country. Details indicating a tourist from the United Kingdom who visited Vic Falls tested positive hence all restaurants, hotels, safaris and wildlife parks were immediately closed to keep the spread. This also resulted in the ban of flights into the town, thereby creating job losses in the sector. The reopening of the sector is good news, Tourism Minister Mangalison Lovo indicated. Where we are reopening these to locals intra the city or within city, um, I think this will give us a clear picture on our state of readiness uh, when the president opens up intercity travel, we should be able to handle our clients in a most uh, uh, protected way. We are very much cautious about the, uh, the virus and the need to be uh, well prepared. So we are opening this so that those within the vicinity of the national parks uh, and uh, the safaris are able to take advantage and, and visit now, uh, but again strictly adhering to the guidelines that the, uh, the government has put in place. Thank you. Meanwhile, Zimbabwe Tourism Authority, ZTA, welcomed the government's decision as the continuous closure of the tourism sector was seriously affecting the economy. Corporate Affairs Manager for ZTA, Godfrey Koti spoke to Channel Africa and had this to say. The Zimbabwe Tourism Authority has received with great excitement the news of the further relaxations of the lockdown under the current level two. The tourism industry is extremely excited about the development which is a great stride towards opening of the tourism sector. We acknowledge the efforts by the authorities and indeed the nation to keep the spread of COVID-19 under check and thank the Almighty for his watchful eye over our nation. The development will stimulate domestic tourism activity as we anxiously expect regional and international traffic to be allowed. Our work is cut out for us as we have to ensure excellent service provision under the approved guidelines and strict protocols. The sector is ready and everyone cannot wait to start operating under the new conditions. Already, Zimbabwe has lost out on a number of international events that have helped raise so much revenue for the country in the past. Harare International Festival of the Arts, held in May each year, could not be held this year. Sanganai Langanani Tourism Festival and the Carnival are some of the global events that will not take place this year. The Jazz Festival in October and the Jacaranda Festival, the time when Jacaranda trees bloom, may take place, but only for the locals owing to the pandemic fears. In Arare, Zimbabwe for Channel Africa, this is Simon Mchemwa. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy, which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NETLE to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. Tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were periods and the, the level of education which I have. 
Channel Africa. Hundreds of representatives from government, UN agencies and various advocacy groups have come together for the first major international virtual summit on the impact of COVID-19 on women, children and adolescents' health. Dubbed Lives in the Balance, the two-day online meeting is jointly convened by the World Health Organization and Partnership for Maternal, Newborn and Child Health, PMNCH. Keynote speakers include the World Health Organization's Dr. Tedros Adhanom, Gebrisus and chair of PMNCH and former Prime Minister of New Zealand, Helen Clark. More from PMNCH's Executive Director, Dr. Helga Fochstadt in Geneva. You know, it is critical because uh, it has always been lives of balance of women, children, adolescent health uh, have always been marginalized. And so now even more so under this pandemic. Mm. So the core group and ourselves uh, in PMNCH, which is a a membership uh, organization of over 1,000 members across the world, have come together in order to say, okay, what do we, we need to take this seriously. We need to pay special attention for women, children, adolescent health, which are even more in dire straits now than before. Now, Doctor, I think you rightfully mentioned that uh, these groups are already um, marginalized in society before this pandemic. Um, talk us through some of the key issues that will be tackled that um, these groups are, are struggling with during this time. Well, first of all, they usually don't have a voice and they are even more now isolated. And so their health needs to be paid attention to. They need to make sure that we need to make sure that the services reach them and they're included and empowered to understand self-care, care-seeking behavior, and that uh, their health, it, not only as a direct measure of the pandemic, but also indirect, because as you know, it is keeping uh, women and children from uh, getting other types of services, which are then uh, resulting into life-threatening situations too. Mm. Now, Doctor, some bold commitments were made last year at the uh, groundbreaking Nairobi summit um, uh, to advance sexual reproductive health and rights. Do we see promises actually translating into action during this critical time? Well, we do, but I think uh, it's becoming difficult to understand uh, what to prioritize. So this summit mm. is, is trying to be able to say, listen, it's about these interventions. It's about these, uh, you know, some measures of taking care of the way of ensuring that they have uh, access to services uh, and also that their rights are taken care of. So you can say many times in, types of, in times of crisis, we have been able to prioritize more correctly and be more equitable and be more fair. Mm. So even in the times of war, one has been able to kind of then say, okay, we need these measures to make sure that uh, the population group that is uh, marginalized uh, actually gets these services and the attention that they need. Mm. So this is an opportunity and this is what the summit is all about in Mm. order to see some success stories, in order to understand how we can partner better together, in order to see how we can do more together than alone because there is not enough funds so Mm. we need to do uh, a more of an equitable uh, measure moving forward Mm, a collective effort like you say now uh, just before we let you go uh, doctor let's take a look at what's really at stake Um, should the world fail to safeguard the health and rights of course of women children and adolescents during this pandemic yes there should be policies that actually are put in place in order to uh, ensure that but we don't want uh, empty promises, uh, really. We've, we've got enough of those. So I think with our partnership that cuts across 10 different constituencies, civil society being one, youth and adolescents being another, led organizations, we need to make sure that women, children, adolescents are getting the services, are empowered, and are being really facilitated to get. So we are also putting in accountability measures in order to not only ensure that our partners are Uh, you know, walking the talk, but that we ourselves are doing that. Well, fantastic. Well, we wish you all the best with those deliberations for people who would like um, uh, to sink their teeth into some of uh, the things that will come out of that conversation and those deliberations. How do they do that? Is there a way to find um, some information opposed to the um, series? They can register. They can still be a part of this. There will be a call for action with seven action points that our board chair, Helen Clark, will 
spell out, there will be an opportunity to not only be a part and get information where you need information, either let it be, you know, normative uh, resources, let it be policy resources, let it be legislative resources, and so forth, but also where to know where to partner with others. The other thing is that we will see look into accountability measures so that we can then say, okay, what was it that was promised and what was it that we did? And that's Dr. Helga Fokstad, the Executive Director of the Partnership for Maternal, Newborn and Child Health. And she was on the line from Geneva in Switzerland to Zikona Miso. India has banned TikTok and 58 other Chinese mobile apps as part of a tit-for-tat retaliation after the rival armies clashed in June. Uh, and as the border military tensions grew, local software firms scrambled to occupy the online shopping space, promising a new basket of fresh products to users at home. Rana Sen reports from New Delhi. The ban has also possibly derailed a $1 billion India expansion plan of Chinese internet company ByteDance, which owns TikTok. And Chinese-American author Gordon Chang called it a step in the right direction. Take out the Chinese equipment already in your telecom backbone, boycott Chinese goods, make it clear that India is going to impose severe costs on China. China is afraid of India. It thinks it can push India around um, because it's been pushing India around for many, many decades. Um, But if they see a new attitude, then they're going to take notice and they will treat you with respect. But until you show that strength, China will continue to try to dismember your country. TikTok has been installed 610 million times in India and ruling BJP party spokeswoman Lalita Kumara Mangalam said India can do without imported pastime. I have been complaining about uh, TikTok for over a year and that's only when I, I mean, I got really upset seeing some of the effect it's having on people, especially the youngsters, long before COVID came in. India has taken a stand where we are saying very clearly that we are not going to take it. And this is one of the steps. Militarily going to war is a different question altogether. But everybody agrees that one of the best ways to hit a country is economically. But there should be no half measures, argued internet security expert Ritesh Bhatia as the ban sparked an online uproar from users of TikTok. If the government is serious, do it once and for all. We don't want to see this back again, you know, after three days, four days saying, okay, look, you know, now my relations are resolved. Now you can use it. No, please understand keeping the relations aside, keeping your political equations aside. Please understand that, yes, all these apps do send out a lot of data. So, you know, we really need to take all these things seriously. Chingari is already off the block. TikTok's Indian version recorded 90,000 new users joining the app per hour with over 3 million videos watched so far, said its co-founder Sumit Ghosh. Platforms out there like us, like we are growing at a breakneck speed right now, registering you know 10 to 15 million downloads every day. So alternative platforms will come up in uh, you know next couple of months to fill the gap. Uh, India has enough tech talent, India has enough technology, intellectual capability to build a, uh, you know a TikTok competitor or fill the space which TikTok. Uh, was operating on so all these influencers will again uh, you know again start making money digital experts said the ban was largely symbolic as downloaded apps cannot be blocked in devices where they are already installed this is Anna sen reporting from new delhi this is channel africa south africa's official international public radio station on internet and satellite from an African perspective. Guess what? You can now listen to Channel Africa using Silozi, Chinyanja, Kiswahili, Portuguese, French and English, giving you an African perspective. Hi, my name is Tandalunyanzovo and you are listening to Channel Africa. We love Channel Africa from an African perspective. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. I am an African. I owe my being to the hills and the valleys, the mountains and the glades, the rivers, the deserts, the trees, the flowers, the seas, and the ever-changing seasons that define the face of our native land.
Masterclass Africa, where great minds connect. An explorative one-on-one talk show that seeks to tackle issues of leadership and consciousness on the African continent and around the world. Masterclass comes to you every Fridays, 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock Central African Time. Channel Africa, bringing you the African Perspective. Central African time. Here's Joalani Tulo with your latest news headlines. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Samora. Making headlines as Saba. At least 50 people have been killed in Ethiopia's Oromia region during violent protests over the killing of a popular musician in the country. Uganda is temporarily opening part of its border to allow at least 3,000 Congolese refugees into the country. And finally, Prime British, Britain's Prime Minister rather, Boris Johnson has urged Israel not to go ahead with the annexation of parts of the occupied West Bank. For Channel Africa, I'm Cholani Tulo. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Diarrhea, abdominal pain, nausea and vomiting have been added to the list of new symptoms for COVID-19 by the Center for Disease Control. It says older people and those with underlying medical conditions remain at an increased risk for severe illness. In South Africa, public health experts have warned the public against linking individual symptoms to COVID-19 and rushing to get tested. Tabilem Bele reports. The Center for Disease Control says based on a detailed review of available evidence on COVID-19, it has updated and expanded the list of symptoms linked to the pandemic. Dr. Kerrigan McCarthy is from the National Institute for Communicable Diseases. The new symptoms to the CDC-defined list are gastrointestinal symptoms. So it's uh, diarrhea, abdominal pain, nausea and vomiting. Now these symptoms are not new to COVID infection. So the commonest symptoms uh, of COVID are a cough, fever and body aches and pains, followed by sore throat, um, respiratory symptoms, runny nose, chest pains are a common symptom. She says there's been an accumulation of information leading to a better understanding of the disease in the past few months, hence the amendments. McCarthy has warned the public against rushing to get tested for individual symptoms. We're really reaching an exponential peak, an increase in the number of cases, and there's real pressure on hospital beds and there's pressure on laboratory testing. If you don't have symptoms, don't go for a test. You don't need to. There is minimal risk to yourselves and others. And equally, the test is not going to change your clinical management. There is no added benefit to testing if you don't have symptoms. Dr. Karen Berg, a public health specialist at the University of Cape Town, says it's important to keep up with the changing nature of COVID-19. Unfortunately, this disease is like a chameleon. And um, as we learn more about it, we realize that there are so many other manifestations of the way in which people present, because it's not entirely a respiratory disease anymore, as we'd first understood. It's in fact um, a thromboembolic disease. That means that it's a disease of of the blood vessels um, with inflammation. And so the, the organ that gets most affected or commonly affected is the lungs, but there are so many other ways that it can present as well. Berg says the asymptomatic cases also add a different perspective to the COVID-19 response. She says in South Africa, one of the early concerns was that we were not testing sufficiently. And even with increased daily number of tests, we still do not have a true reflection of the impact of COVID-19 because of the asymptomatic cases. So if we do it conservatively, we're looking at, based on our deaths alone, at four and a half to 4.8 million cases in the country. But we're only detecting 125,000 cases. Mm. So in one sense, it's good news and that for the vast majority, those cases are likely to be asymptomatic. Many of us may well have had the disease and not ever been diagnosed. But on the other hand, it does mean that it makes it very difficult to control the epidemic because so many people are pretty much walking Mm -hmm. around with COVID unknowingly. Both McCarthy and Berg have pleaded with members of the public to abide by their regulations now more than ever and encourage them to only test for COVID-19 when necessary. Tabilem Pele, Johannesburg. 
South Africa's Centre for Early Childhood Development has urged government to provide a once-off allocation of a coronavirus-slash-COVID-19 pandemic-related grant of 20,000 rand. That is just over 1,000 US dollars to each registered early childhood development center. An estimated 375,000 children across South Africa may be left to fend for themselves if real political will is not shown in rescuing the country's ECDs from collapse. This, according to Professor Eric Atmore, the founding director of the Center for Early Childhood Development. He now joins us on the line. Professor, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Good afternoon to Maura and good afternoon to your listeners. Now, Prof, firstly tell us uh, the, the, the impact the nationwide lockdown has had on the ECD centers. There have been multiple impacts, uh, both on children and on parents, and then also on the ECD Start with the children. Two and a half million children normally go to an ECD center every single day. Since the lockdown three months ago, those two and a half million children have not had the early learning opportunities, the early literacy and life skills learning that they would normally get. They've lost meal for many of those two and a half million children. Their main meal is at the ECD center. So that's all been lost. And that has a huge impact on young children. Then parents haven't been able to go to work. Now, three months later, with almost 95% of uh, people employed back at work, those parents cannot go back to work because there's nobody to look off. And then finally, we've got about 180,000 ECD teachers, the overwhelming majority of whom are women. They've been without an income for three months, and they are not sure whether they are going to have a job when they get back. So the impact has been horrific on children, on ECD teachers, stroke women, and on our communities. Now, Prof, there hasn't been much talk from the government with regards to the opening on ECDs under Level 3 of the nationwide lockdown. Does it look to you like there has not been much interest from the government? Uh, Samora, that's exactly what it is. You know, almost Every industry is now back at work. Uh, Animals, theaters, museums, hairdressers, beauty salons, those are all going back. The Department of Social Development has been absolutely silent over the past three months. They have still not announced a, an opening date. And in fact, as we're speaking, there's a court case uh, to compel the department to announce the date. And I'm bitterly disappointed that our government, the people's government, has seen fit to ignore millions of young children. And Professor, are you there? Yes, yes, I am. Sorry, we missed you there for a second. Uh, if you could just repeat your last line for us. I think millions of children have been left at risk. And I'm disappointed in government for, for doing that and not living up to the United Nations Convention of the Rights of the Child Mandela signed in 1995. Now, Prof, the reality is that many parents are reluctant to take their kids back to school during these times. What should those parents do to keep their kids engaged with learning at home, especially considering that, uh, you know, there's so much that is happening all around us? It's understandable that there will be a section of the parent population and will be a significant number who will be reluctant. That's normal. Um, But that doesn't mean that they cannot do early education opportunities at home with their children. The easiest is obviously singing with their children, telling stories to children, and then using educational equipment or improvised equipment if there's no education equipment in the a empty milk uh, plastic bottle is a wonderful boat if you look around stones are wonderful counting uh, tools so they're, they're
opportunity for for adults who are a bit resistant or fearful of taking their child back to to the east to those activities. And young children love stories. And the stories that particularly love is what did you, mommy, or what did you, daddy, or what did you, grandma, child? Those types of type of told and retold. So they are not wanting to take their child back to the ECD center. All right, Prof. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And that was Professor Eric Atmore, the founding director of the Centre for Early Childhood Development, calling on government to also prioritise the opening of ECDs as the country continues to fight against uh, COVID-19. Bringing your latest updates on the novel coronavirus, I am Silvanus Kalemera for Channel Africa in Kigali in Rwanda. For the advice given by a healthcare provider, your national and local public health authority or your employer, on how to protect yourself and others from COVID-19. The United States has called on the United Nations Security Council to extend an arms embargo on Iran that was due to expire in October in order for the Middle East country to start behaving like a normal nation. That was the message delivered by the U.S. Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, after Washington uh, Washington earlier circulated a draft resolution to indefinitely extend the arms embargo, which was set to end under this year, under the uh, 2015 nuclear deal signed with the world powers. Sean Bryce Peace reports. Washington's top diplomat urged the council to indefinitely extend the arms embargo, making the case for why his country didn't view Iran as a responsible democracy. One Michael Pompeo believes must be held to account. Don't just take it from me or from the United States. Listen to countries in the region, from Israel, the Gulf, countries in the Middle East who are most exposed to Iran's predations are speaking with a single voice. Extend the arms embargo. This council has a responsibility to listen to them. The United States administration of President Donald Trump has long argued for the embargo's extension, a measure that was due to expire in mid-October under a nuclear agreement reached by world powers in 2015 that included the U.S. under the administration of former President Barack Obama. President Trump subsequently withdrew from it in 2018, and Iran has since breached parts of the agreement in response to the U.S. withdrawal and to Washington's implementation of unilateral sanctions on Tehran as part of a maximum pressure campaign. Renewing the embargo will exert more pressure on Tehran to start behaving like a normal nation. The world needs this to happen. The long-suffering Iranian people need this to happen. But Iran's foreign minister, Mohammad Javad Zarif, warned that any new restrictions would go against fundamental commitments made to the Iranian people in terms of the 2015 deal, which it had largely complied with until the U.S. withdrawal. This status quo is neither acceptable nor sustainable. The international community in general and the United Nations Security Council in particular are facing an important decision. Do we maintain respect for the rule of law or do we return to the law of the jungle by surrendering to the whims of an outlaw bully? It is long overdue for the international community and in particular this council to hold the United States government accountable for the consequences of its wrongful acts, including its malicious endeavors to wage economic terrorism on the entire Iranian nation. If the arms embargo is not extended, Washington has threatened to trigger a snapback clause in the nuclear agreement that would automatically return all previous UN sanctions on Iran, despite it leaving the agreement in 2018. Chinese Ambassador Zhang Yun said not so fast. China opposes the US push for extending arms embargo on Iran. All provisions of Resolution 2231 should be implemented, including arrangements on arms-related restrictive measures. Having quit the JCPOA, the U.S. is no longer a participant and has no right to trigger snapback at the Security Council. Russia's Ambassador Vasilina Benzia might have touched a nerve with these comments. 
We've been watching with grave concern the policy of maximum pressure on Iran, which is better characterized, characterized as a, a maximum suffocation policy. Iran is being deliberately squeezed from all directions. The task is to, re- to achieve regime change or create a situation where Iran literally wouldn't be able to breathe. This is like putting a knee to one's neck. Pretoria's envoy Jerry Machila called for the council to pursue steps that would de-escalate tensions in the Gulf region. Saragai is therefore resolute on its support for the continuation of efforts to resolve tensions between all actors in the region and promote dialogue rather than antagonism in order to safeguard gains already made in terms of disarmament and non-proliferation, which are essential for the maintenance of broader international peace and security. European Union countries have indicated they are working on reaching a compromise between the US, Russia and China, but would not support unilateral steps to reimpose snapback sanctions on Iran. I'm Sherman Bricepees in New York. European football leagues are edging closer to the finish of the 2019-2020 season. In the two-horse race in Spain's La Liga, second-placed Barcelona drops points at home against Atletico Madrid after being held to a two-all draw last night. Uh, In Italy, Genoa. Uh, in Italy, rather, Serie A leaders Juventus are four points clear of Lazio after a 3-1 win away to Genoa. Duduzi Ndlovu reports. Barcelona gave up more ground to Real Madrid in La Liga's tightly race last night after being held to a 2-2 draw at home against Atletico Madrid. Barca went ahead at an empty Camp Nou in the 11th minute of the match when Atletico striker Diego Costa knocked Lionel Messi's delivery from a corner into his own net. Saul Nikes leveled soon after from the spot after the referee ordered a retake when Costa's initial penalty was saved by Mark Henry Testegan. The referee had ruled that Testegan had strayed from his line before Costa's attempt. After the break, Barcelona won a penalty and Messi stepped up to score his 700th goal for club and country, only for Saul to strike again from the spot to level matters for the third-placed Atletico. The draw meant the Catalans stayed second on the standings with 70 points and leaders Real Madrid, who have 71, will go four points clear at the top with five matches left if they beat Hatafe at home tomorrow. Barcelona coach Kike Sentien reacted to Messi's milestone and the team's performance. I don't know if he'll score another 700, but I'm sure he'll score many more goals. But there's no limit for football players like this. He never ceases to amaze us. I think that my team played a good match. The result doesn't reflect all of the good things that we do, but we continue to be strong and with a lot of excitement, we want to continue and we look forward to the next games that we still have to play and we're going to continue doing so until the end. Atletico Madrid coach Diego Simeone expressed his satisfaction with the overall performance of one of his strikers, Diego Costa, who scored an own goal early in the match. I think this was one of the more better games he's had with us. I think the whole match he was working very hard for the team, sacrificing himself a lot. I think in the 17th minute we saw that he had given everything and that's what we need from him. We need that from everybody because it's going to be very difficult from here until the end of the season. All the matches are difficult and the teams that we play against have their needs. In Serie A, leaders Juventus scored three second-half goals in their match away to Genoa. Argentine Paulo Dybala opened the scoring from the edge of the area before Cristiano Ronaldo's long-range strike made it 2-0 to Juve. Almost 20 minutes later, Brazilian winger Douglas Costa put icing on the cake with an exceptional strike. Andrea Pinamonti scored a consolation goal for the home side with 15 minutes to play. 
Juve are four points clear of second place Lazio with nine matches to go. In England, Manchester United continued with their good run. 15 minutes into their match against Brighton, teenager Mason Greenwood made it 1-0 to the visitors. That was before Portugal's Bruno Fernandes grabbed a praise for the Ole Gunnar Solskjaer-led team. United have now played 15 straight matches without a loss. They are up to fifth on the standings, two points behind Chelsea, who have a game in hand and whom they look to unseat for the UEFA Champions League spot. I am Mumtutuzinlovo in Johannesburg. The time is 17:50 Central African time. Here is Nosikhe Zuma with your latest economics news. Thank you, Samora. Good evening. The African National Congress Secretary-General Ace Mahashule says the party is completely opposed to retrenchments in the public sector, including the South African Broadcasting Corporation. This follows a notification from the SABC that it was embarking on a retrenchment process targeting 600 employees. Mahashule was briefing the media on the outcomes of an NEC meeting that took place over the weekend. And we don't want people to lose jobs. That is our bottom line, and I think we are encouraging all our state entities. We are encouraging, including the public sector. We are encouraging SABC. Imagine SABC retrenching 600 people during this COVID. What is going to happen to the lives of those people? What is going to happen to their houses? What's going to happen to their cars? What's going to happen to their children? Insurance claims experts Insurance Claims Africa says it will be going to court to resolve a deadlock regarding the mass rejection of COVID-19 claims by some insurance companies. The organization represents tourism and hospitality firms in South Africa against large insurance. Uh, many tourism and hospitality businesses have expensive business interruptions cover for unse- for unforeseen rainy days. The forced closure of these businesses during the lockdown and now the rejection of their insurance claims have put many businesses and jobs in jeopardy insurance claims africa ceo ryan woolley just over 500 claimants who have got in our view valid claims against their policies with many of the major insurance companies from suntan to bright to god risk to hollard to old mutual insure our view is that these claims are being unfairly rejected and curtailed by the insurers uh, despite efforts by the FSCA as well as um, many other uh, instances which have broken around the world and in South Africa our insurance coming out and uh, agreeing to meet all their claimants claim business interruption insurance is specific insurance that a business will buy to help them cover their costs running costs their salaries and wages their and water and lights in order to survive following an insured event. CEO of the Tourism Business Council of South Africa Chifiwa Chivengwa is calling on government to intervene. We now know that the UIF TS program is coming to an end. It's not going to be extended. So there won't be any UIF for employees. There is no relief for business from these insurance companies. The travel between provinces is prohibited. So what do you expect us to do as a tourism sector? We can't just sit back and do nothing when you know every way of our you know business lives is being impacted across the board and many other people you know that are within the value chain are being impacted. I think it's quite critical that uh, you know the government comes into this space as well and sit down with these insurance companies be it the minister of finance sit down with these insurance companies and talk to them and let's understand why they're refusing to pay and government must also be accountable Apacrust owner SSP Group says up to 5000 jobs could be cut across its United Kingdom's outlets and head office as it struggles with the reduction in passenger travel. The firm says global sales in April and May were 95% below the previous years. SSP has 580 outlets across the UK, mostly at railway stations and airports, but fewer than 10 are currently open. The company expects only one-fifth of its UK stores to be open by the autumn. It joins a growing list of companies slashing jobs as the United Kingdom economy suffers its worst contraction in 41 years. In the past few days, a number of firms have announced job cuts across the UK.
And three people have been arrested in China for a scam that's caused a dispute between two of the country's most recognizable brands. The tech giant Tencent has been suing the popular condiment maker Lao Ganma for non-payment for promotional work, but it denied ever having signed a contract. The BBC's Will Leonardo reports. It's an argument between two Chinese household names that's left many scratching their heads. Lao Gamma's famous label depicting the woman who concocted its chilli sauce appeared prominently in a recent Tencent video game. The firm said it had signed a contract last year and Lao Ganma hadn't paid. The chilli sauce maker felt the heat this week when a court ordered more than $2 million of its assets frozen. But police now believe that China's largest tech company has been the victim of a scam. They said three people had forged the sauce maker's seal to sign the agreement with the aim of obtaining Tencent game codes to resell online. For your financial indicators, uh, the US dollar is trading at 387.07 Nigerian Nara, 11.65 Botswana Pula, 105.48 Kenyan Shilling, and 18.12 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one US dollar is trading at 5.42 Brazilian Roll, 70.73 Russian Ruble, 75.22 Indian Rupee, 7.07 Chinese Yuan, and at 17.32 South African Rand. The US dollar is also trading at 81 pence to the British pound at 89 cents to the euro. Looking at commodities, gold is trading at $1,781 and platinum at $819 per ounce. And the price of brand crude oil is at $41.07 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Nusi Lezuma. This is Africa Digest. That wraps up this hour of Africa Digest. Be sure to join us again from 1900 hours for more news from an African perspective. From us here in Johannesburg, though, in the meantime, should you want to get in contact with us, do send us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za. Send us a WhatsApp message to plus two seven seven six three zero zero three three two seven, And you can also tweet us on at channel Africa one Right now, though, taking us to the top of the hour is a song titled Yours by Burita. We'll see you later.